Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. I'm Roger Hearing and on this edition, Elon Musk sues OpenAI for breach of contract, saying the company's abandoned its non-profit mission. Also, how Brazil could make better use of some of its most fertile land, a push in New York to turn empty offices into housing. New Zealand tourist firms have fined millions over a volcano disaster that killed 22 visitors. And the Spanish city planning to charge tourists for visiting its most famous square. And remember, you can email us at any time on world.business at bbc.co.uk. Now, there have been a number of fallings out among the giants of the tech world over the years, but the legal action being launched now by Elon Musk against OpenAI is of a different order. The billionaire entrepreneur is suing the artificial intelligence firm that he helped set up for breach of contract. But the contractual obligation he says they've breached is its founding principle to benefit humanity without a profit motive. He says the billions of dollars Microsoft has poured into OpenAI has turned it effectively into a subsidiary and that they set the founding agreement aflame in 2023 when the company, headed by Sam Altman, released its most powerful language model, GPT-4, as essentially, he says, a Microsoft product. Well, joining me now is Gillian Bomarito, Chief Risk Officer at Legal Technology and AI Experts 273 Ventures. Gillian, thanks for being with us. Um, first of all, just why has the, is this legal action uh, happening now? Because we heard complaints from Elon Musk for over the last few months, but it's only now he's actually set up a law case. So, so what's going on? Uh, hi, it's great to be with you. And it is interesting to think about why this is suddenly public. Maybe he decided with the extra leap day, he was going to finally file this. Um, I think that there is likely something going on that he may know more about than the general public does. Um, with uh, with Google Gemini's recent 1.5 release, I think that there's likelihood that OpenAI may be releasing GPT-5 in the near future. And it's very possible that this filing is to get ahead of that and to prevent it from falling into Microsoft's hands exclusively. Um, Now, there is no guarantee that that would happen, even if it were released. As we saw in the filing, he wanted the court to decide whether GPT-4 had reached AGI, uh, in which case Microsoft would not have it. But it's possible that's why he decided to file it now, the rumblings of the release of GPT-5 got too loud. Um, it's also possible Elon's been in talks to raise money for Grok, his own XAI AI, um, and this could be part of his fundraising strategy with those conversations. So what you're saying really is it's, it perhaps has more commercial purposes than actually worrying about the benefit of humanity. It may. It depends on where, whether I'm wearing my cynical hat. Um, it could also 
you know, just be a traditional business dispute. These types of things come up. Uh, in OpenAI's case, they have a particularly complex and unique structure with the nonprofit entity, a capped profit entity. And it's possible that this just happened to be filed at this time. And there's no true meaning behind the timing of it. Um, it could be due to spite <laughs> you know you never you never know what um what motivates somebody and i think that anybody who has been on twitter now x has seen elon musk is a bit of a wild card you never truly know what he's going to do next and this might just be the most recent instance of that yeah you know, that's a bit of an underestimation i think in some ways <laughs> of, of what happens but jillian i mean it is interesting because what he's trying to prove uh, with the court case is is whether a company's priorities is one way or the other but that's a very hard thing to to prove because a company uh, could claim i guess that any of its products in the end are intended to to benefit humanity it is. However, I think what is most notable is the deviation in how OpenAI has treated their models over time. Uh, in 2015, when they first started, they were developing much earlier models. And it wasn't until 2019 that they even released um, GPT-2. But when they released that, everything was very open as the name OpenAI would suggest their research was open, the model weights were open. And over time, we've seen that openness degrade. And it may be that it's gotten to the point because GPT-4, the research on it was closed, the weights were closed. He may have just said, this is enough is enough. You're not complying with the the purpose of this yeah. corporation as a nonprofit I'm basically going to force your hand. Yeah, so open AI not being basically very open, I suppose you could say. Gillian, thanks yeah. for being with us. Gillian Bomarito there, Chief Risk Officer at 273 Ventures. Now, Brazil is a huge and growing economy. It's just released its GDP figures for last year. The economy grew 2.9% to 2.2 trillion US dollars. That makes it one of the 10 biggest in the world. But it could be bigger still. That's according to the World Economic Forum, which this week released a report on the Gerardo. That's a vast savanna region just south of the Amazon rainforest. It's the breadbasket of Brazil, accounting for 60% of Brazil's agricultural production and over a fifth of the world's soybean exports. But it's being plundered. According to the government, there was a 43% increase in deforestation there last year. The WEF says that if the land was used sustainably, it could add an extra $72 billion, or more than 3% of GDP, to Brazil's economy each year. Well, earlier I spoke to Felipe Faria. He's the director in Brazil of a company called Systemique that advises companies on how to improve their sustainability. And it worked with WEF on this report. What we have seen is that the soy production, for example, reduced 1.6% uh, compared to the last year, which is related to some breaks in the production with the climatic conditions. But the government is still keeping some level of confidence, which is not shared completely by the economic analysts. So they're perhaps being overconfident, really, about where the country's going. 
I would say not an overconfidence, but an expectation that is still possible to grow more than 3%. But the agriculture probably will not contribute like contributed last year. Well, let's talk about the agriculture specifically, and and particularly that WEF report. Uh, Considering how much progress was made on reducing the deforestation of the Amazon in in the Cerrado, it seems to be up by 43%. What's going on? Yes, what we have seen is that the command and control measures that the government implemented last year were successful in terms of reduce uh, the deforestation in the Amazon, but the Cerrado deforestation increased. The Cerrado has been transformed into this economic powerhouse for Brazil. However, in a lower level of legal protection of the Cerrado compared to the Amazon, for example, uh, in the, the Amazon, the forest code implies a protection of around 80% of the property in the Cerrado this number varies but can be reduced to 30%. Also, there is a lot of private land in the Cerrado and what we're seeing is an increase of both legal and illegal deforestation. So in the Cerrado, what's the answer to dealing with this? Because the report that the WF put out talked about a need for a, a new balanced approach. But what does that mean? It means that it's possible to reconcile the nature protection with agriculture production and industrial development. For example, the Cerrado has 30 million hectares of degraded lands that could be restored. We also have the possibility to aggregate more value to the production by using the residues for sustainable feedstock. And what kind of agriculture are we talking about then? You talk about feedstock, but, but overall, what could be developed and grown then in the, in the Cerrado? The report outlines three strategies. First, integrated crop livestock forestry systems, which means merge livestock farming with the production of crops, producing more in the same area. The second point is pasture recover and livestock semantification, where it's possible to intensify the production, which means increase the beef production by more than 100% per hectare, while we reduce those emissions around 50%. And finally, agroforest models could be a solution, especially for smallholders, where we, we are involving planting trees, shrubs, on other plants on farmland to create a higher productivity, a higher diversification. In the same time, improve land use management and improving biodiversity, the soil health. Now, Felipe, in general, deforestation in, in Brazil, we've said that it's gone down in the Amazon. But do you think the political appetite is there to continue doing that? Because obviously it increased dramatically under the last president, Jair Bolsonaro. The current government, Lula da Silva's government, have they really got on top of the whole issue of deforestation? It's clear that there is a commitment from the government and the result is possible to see in terms of the deforestation data in the Amazon. However, there is still some work to do in terms of implement the rural registry, which allows traceability, allows a better control of deforestation. And finally, create incentives for the Cerrado in terms of the legal deforestation. We need to reduce illegal deforestation to zero, but also create incentives for the private owners to keep their forests instead of converting to agricultural production. There are some examples out there, but we need to replicate and Felipe Faria there. You're with World Business Report from the BBC World Service. 
The Global Story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles. Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world, but very different ones online. One Global Story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a, a very dark shadow. This looks like a message. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Let's talk about what's been going on on the markets today. We can speak to Chris Lowe, Chief Economist at FHN Financial in New York. Chris, thanks for being with us again. Um, Big news about Boeing. I mean, Boeing under a lot of pressure, of course, after that uh, accident when a door panel blew out uh, in a flight in January. But they're now in talks to buy Spirit Aerosystems, which builds fuselages. What's going on? Well, that's right. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, that that was once part of Boeing, and they spun it off at a time when uh, they thought the top priority of the company should be profitability. And uh, as you might imagine, now they think it's a higher priority to have control of the entire construction process. And I think that's what this is really about. And shares in spirit, I saw, jumped quite a bit uh, late morning trading after the that report in the newspaper came out. So clearly that's something that's uh, buoying spirits a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is also part of a change at Boeing under new management. Uh, the company has lost sight. It had an excellent safety record for years and years. And clearly, uh, that, that hasn't been the case in the last five years or so. So it's encouraging to see they're giving it a little more attention now. Now, Chris, you and I have spoken about uh, U.S. regional banks once or twice and a few issues and headaches coming up with them. But I see New York Community Bank Corp has lost, well, more than a fifth of the value of the shares on Friday because um, it said it's replaced its chief executive and identified material weaknesses. Is this something we should get worried about? Because this kind of thing has led to something rather bigger in the past. Well, it, 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 this is a really unique story to this particular bank. What happened was uh, they acquired the better assets, believe it or not, of Signature Bank. When Signature went out of business, that was last spring. But in doing so, the bank grew over $100 billion. And banks over $100 billion in size come under uh, extreme scrutiny by the regulators. And that's what's touched off a series of events where they found loans that maybe don't look quite as solid as they should. And uh, this bank has been under pressure now for about a month and a half. Uh, frankly, after they found problems the first time a month and a half ago, uh, it, it was hoped by shareholders that identified everything, but clearly not. It sounds that way, doesn't it? A bit of a concern there. Chris, thanks for being with us. Chris Lowe there of FHN Financial in New York. Now, in the U.S., only about one and a half percent of office buildings are being converted into housing. One place working to create new living spaces from old workplaces is New York City, where the vacancy rate for rental apartments is just 1.4 percent, the lowest it's been since the city started measuring it in 1968. Well, the city recently created what it's calling an office-to-housing accelerator in order to help owners and developers who want to convert office buildings get through what can be a pretty cumbersome process rather more quickly. But there are many hurdles, as Marketplace's Samantha Fields explains. 
For about 50 years, 160 Water Street in downtown Manhattan was an office building. And from the outside, it still looks like one, a 30-story glass box. But by the front, there's a sign, now leasing, Studio One and Two Bedroom Residences. Hi, hey, Samantha. Nice. Yeah, how are you? Sam, nice, nice to, to meet, meet you. you. So I met Malik Hajar in the lobby a couple of weeks ago. He's a senior project manager of real estate development for the Van Barton Group, which owns the building. The building was built in 1971. You know, offices on the perimeter, cubicles right in the middle, carpet. The lighting wasn't the best. <laughs> and so it, was, it definitely had an, an old office vibe. It definitely needed to be you know, revamped. We're going to take the elevator up here. Instead of revamping the offices, the Van Barton Group focused on a different market opportunity, housing. It spent the last two years converting this whole building into 588 high-end apartments. Right now we are in construction mode. You can see we have our appliances that are in the unit waiting to be installed. This is one of just four former office buildings in New York currently being converted into apartments. There are a number of challenges that explain why it really hasn't happened so far. Arpit Gupta is at the NYU Stern School of Business. That includes the physical challenges of how to literally transform the space from one use to the other. It includes the cost, both of buying a building and doing major renovations. And then finally, there are regulatory hurdles, which mean the rules may not be in place to allow such a conversion to take place. In New York today, only older office buildings in Midtown and Lower Manhattan are even eligible to be converted. That includes 160 Water Street. Two years into construction, Malik Hajar says some of the lower floors are done, and a few dozen tenants have even moved in. This is a studio. There's a galley kitchen along the wall to the right when you walk in, a little table for two, and a double bed by the big windows, which reach almost to the ceiling. So this was an office. This was somebody's office. It doesn't feel like it. Hajar says there are a bunch of reasons this particular building was a good candidate for converting. We have windows on all three sides of our building, so we're lucky in regards to having the light and air. Though to get air flow, they had to replace more than 2,000 windows because when this was an office building, they didn't open, which is a requirement for apartments. Other pluses, the building already had high ceilings, wide staircases, and a lot of elevators. However, from the elevator to the window line. You're having these very long, you know, 100-foot corridors that are just not going to get you the best kind of layouts. Remember, that's something Arpit Gupta mentioned as a common challenge with these kinds of conversions, finding a way to break up the long, dark floors of old office buildings. Here, they ended up basically cutting a hole and making a shaft in the middle of the building. Another challenge? Where do all my kitchen sinks and, and bathroom pipes go? Typically, Hajar says, on each floor in an office building... You have a men's room and a women's room in a central location, usually back-to-back on opposite sides of a wall. And maybe a kitchen. So if you want to turn each floor into 22 apartments... You have, you know, 22 kitchens per floor and uh, 23 bathrooms. The costs add up. It was definitely not cheap. (laughs) And the apartments here won't be either. Studios start around $3,500 a month and two bedrooms at around $6,000 a month. He says that's the only way the math works. If the city or the state gives us an incentive component, you can add more affordable units as well. New York does not currently offer developers tax abatements for office-to-housing conversions. That is on the table this legislative session. 
But for now, without it, all these offices are just being turned into more expensive apartments. Samantha feels there. Now, you may remember a disaster back in 2019 on an island off the coast of New Zealand. A large group of tourists were visiting White Island Volcano when it erupted. 22 people died. Many of the survivors were gravely injured. Well, the firm that owns that island and those that operated tours there were found guilty last year of negligence and safety breaches. And now a New Zealand court has ordered them to pay six million US dollars in compensation. Well, joining me now from Wellington is Colin Peacock of Radio New Zealand. Colin, thanks for being with us. Just remind us, first of all, about what actually happened. Yes, there were 47 uh, people on the island that day. There are um, companies, several companies that run helicopter and boat charter trips from the mainland out to the island. So, yes, 47 on the island that day. And in the middle of the afternoon, uh, the volcano erupted uh, without warning. It's always been an active volcano, so it's known uh, that it was a dangerous place. Uh, but this had never happened before when there were uh, you know, a substantial number of visitors on the island, only ever had there been activity when there'd been some maintenance workers or people like that on the island. So it was a, it was a terrible shock when it happened. And some of the, uh, the charter and um, tourism companies that have indeed been prosecuted over this were among those that actually rushed to the rescue of people uh, that day because, as you mentioned, 22 died. But of the others who are on the island, many, many have had multiple surgeries and an awful lot of suffering. So it was a terrible disaster that shook the country. But clearly the, the money that's been put there in compensation uh, demands against these companies reflects a, f- a feeling that they got it wrong. They got it badly wrong. Absolutely. In fact, six companies have been fined for failing to meet their obligations under our uh, Health and Safety at Work Act. It's our legislation. So this was effectively a workplace. But the complication is that uh, the island was privately owned. So a lot of New Zealand's other volcanic territories where there's tourism, ski fields, for example, in our North Island, those are all uh, publicly owned. They're part of national parks. Uh, administered by the Department of Conservation, which takes very seriously uh, the safety um, precautions and uh, escape uh, precautions and things like that. So uh, this was not the case. It was a private family that owned the island and effectively licensed out uh, the operations or the the, the, uh, the tourism um, privileges to a range of companies. And the, the awful thing about the financial side of this is that the company that's effectively been prosecuted has almost no assets because the money that was paid to the family was then uh, taken out into a kind of family trust. So uh, the the liability from the company, uh, which is called Fakari uh, Limited Management Limited, that's the indigenous name for the island, Fakari, um, they have very little assets. So it's not at all clear of the of the millions of dollars that the judge has awarded here how much will actually end up in the hands of victims. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose one could say, well, they could never predict whether a volcano was going to erupt. So in a way, the tourists perhaps took their own chances. I mean, maybe this sort of thing is uncontrollable. Absolutely. But, I mean, extraordinarily, the agency that took this case, which was called WorkSafe, our National Health and Safety at Work agency, was itself criticised for not uh, doing sufficient audits of this place where people did indeed work in the tourism industry. So that is a complication. And one of the other agencies that has been prosecuted and will have to pay uh, a relatively modest fine, but GNS Science, this is the government-owned research body that monitors our volcanoes. 
yeah. and issues alerts <laughs> and, and advice to anyone that needs to work and operate in territory where there is danger. So yeah. they have been accused of inadequately communicating with contractors as well. So a very complicated situation. Complicated and obviously uh, very tragic for a lot of people. Colin, thanks for being with us. Colin Peacock there of Radio New Zealand. Now, Seville is a jewel of Spain. Tourists flock to see the Alcazar, the Cathedral and the Tower of Gold. But if they want to visit the central square, the ornate Plaza de España, they may soon have to pay a fee. The city's mayor, José Luis Sanz, said that was his plan. But as I heard from Miguel Macias, a reporter in Seville, it's not universally popular there. The mayor proposed to charge a fee to enter the Plaza de España, which is one of the main landmarks here in Seville. And uh, it's actually quite a low fee. We're talking about three or four euros. So there's a lot of fuss around this uh, this proposal, but it's not a whole lot of money, basically. The goal would be to use this money to keep, to keep the Plaza de España safe, but also to keep it pristine, because right now some of the areas are in pretty bad shape, in, in fact. But it's a public square, isn't it, as I understand it? So... In a way, if you say, no, you can't come in without paying a fee and you've got to distinguish between tourists and locals, that's quite complicated. It is, but uh, they do it already, actually, in some of the um, other places in Seville. There's the Alcázar, the Jardines de Alcázar and uh, the Palace, which is a beautiful, gorgeous complex. And uh, if you have uh, your national ID that says that you live in Seville, you get a better deal or even a free uh, pass to go into the into the Alcázar. So it's not unprecedented, uh, but the reaction has been against this proposal by most people. So uh, even though it's not impossible to do and it has some precedent, the the people of the city uh, seem to be quite against this proposal. Why is that? What, why is the feeling against it? I think it's because the Plaza de España, which is right next to a park, both of them were created around the International Expo of 1929, it's actually a place where people traditionally have gone to to, to take walks. Uh, there's also concerts there in the summer. I remember, you know, when I was growing up, before I left uh, for the United States and then came back, um, I would like, you know, hang out there with my friends and play guitar. You know, it's not just uh, it's not just a tourist landmark. It's also a part of the the regular life of the civilians. But people will still be able to do that, won't they? As you said, if they got ID cards that show they're a citizen of Seville, they've got no problem at all. That is true. And in fact, you know, if you if you want my personal opinion, I think that that, that is not such a big deal. But I think it's uh, it's a matter of principle. And the principle is that this uh, square belongs to the people, belongs to the city, belongs to anyone who wants to walk into it. And that charging a fee, even if it's a low fee, creates um, some kind of like theme park, right? Which is uh, something that has been mentioned many times about Seville, that is becoming the centre of Seville, is becoming a theme park where only tourists go. Is it part of the plan, really, to try and deter tourists, maybe? Because is it overcrowded sometimes? Is it a way of perhaps making fewer people go there? I don't think it will deter anyone who comes to Seville to pay three or four euros. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you a funny story. I went to a concert uh, last summer to the Plaza de España, and when there are concerts, sometimes they do close it, actually, because you have to pay a ticket, right? And the, the ticket in this case, I think it was like 30 euros. So I was standing in line to go into the concert, and I saw this Asian uh, couple who wanted to go in. And they said, no, you can't go in. There's a concert. And they said, okay, we'll pay for the concert. We just want to see the square. So they paid you know, quite a hefty ticket price to go into the concert they had no idea about because they wanted to see the square. So uh, I get the feeling that no one, no tourist that comes to the city will be 
bothered by such a fee. Will the square be in better shape? Maybe. But I think that the reaction comes from the notion that they're taking the city away from us, from the from the civilians, you know, from the people who, who live here. And uh, if now they actually officially close it, then it becomes uh, a message, right? That these places are going to be, you know, targeting tourists only and not the locals. And that was Miguel Macias, a reporter in Seville, with this idea of charging tourists for entering certain places. It's been spread along from Venice, of course, which charges tourists to go there. And indeed, Hawaii is thinking of in having a similar thing. We'll be talking about all that if you can join us again on Business Matters in a few hours' time. But that's it from World Business Report.